0: Well, welcome, Joe Chapman. It's been quite some time since uh, I've seen you. Thank you for making time to talk to us a little bit. Before you say anything, let me um, introduce you a little bit to folks who've been watching. If you've been at Westminster for any period of time, then you'll remember Joe as a seminary intern of ours uh, some time ago. What was it? Is it two years ago now, Joe? Uh, Three, yeah. Three, I, it, gosh, yeah. It's, it's hard to believe. Well, great. Well, then we'll really look forward to, to catching up. Uh, Joe was our seminary intern while studying at San Francisco Theological Seminary. Uh, before that, he uh, was a student and remains to be a student of poetry. He taught mm-hmm. at the collegiate level. He has Since uh, leaving the West Coast, he's gone to St. Louis where he is completing a year of what's called CPE. And uh, I guess, Joe, to start... Uh, tell us how you're doing, first of all, and then tell us a little bit about what CPE, CPE is. It stands for Clinical Pastoral Education, but yeah. many folks don't have any idea what that means. So welcome. How are you? Oh.
1: Thank you. Yeah, doing well. Um, good to see you all at Westminster. Uh, so clinical pastoral education, you can do it um, in a number of different settings. Um, the most common one, though, is, is a hospital setting. And what it is, is it's a a program of training uh, for pastoral care. So offering spiritual and emotional care to folks in need. Um, And the way it works is that, at least in the hospital setting, um, it's a lot of learning on the job. So um, I'll make visits to patients or family members and then I'll go back to a group, usually the group is around uh, five or six people, and you have an educator, and you'll talk about those visits, um, and you'll talk about what you could have done differently, uh, what you might do next time, what you did really well. Uh, so it uses something called the, the clinical method of learning, which is um, action, reflection, action. So you do something, you think about it, uh, you talk with other people about it, and then you, and then you try again. Um, so yeah, so it's, but typically, um, you do the, you do CPE in hospital settings and that's where I'm at now. I'm at St. Louis University Hospital. Um, it's a trauma one level, level one trauma hospital and, and, you know, a relatively poor city and racially divided city. So we see quite, quite a lot of, um, rough stuff come through our emergency
0: department. So it's, it's been a real uh, eye opening experience for me. And how did you end up doing that? I mean, those of us who know you know your many gifts, um, pastoral among them, but you know, you're a great writer, a wonderful preacher. What, what made you uh, take this route and where do you think it might be leading?
1: Yeah, um, so I think most pe- for most denominations, uh, the Presbyterian, PCUSA included, uh, CPE has been re- a required part of the ordination process um, for quite some time. I think, you know, maybe, I think CPE was first getting started in the maybe the 30s and the 40s, um, but more recently it's been, been a required part of the ordination process. And so I did an internship at St. Louis University Hospital um, to fulfill my ordination requirement. Um, and I actually had had no idea that it, uh, that it was going to be such an intense experience. I I just like the educator in my interview, and ended up there, but I I didn't quite know what it meant to be you know, a level one trauma center in a poor city. Um, so I I ended up at at this hospital, and I, I just really loved it. Um, I loved. And that would
0: just to clarify that 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 internship would have fulfilled the requirement where yeah. you're doing is a, a year above the. Yeah,
1: yeah. And so I, I finished that internship, and um, I just fell in love with the work, and now I'm back there for a year doing what's called a residency. And then after that, I'll, I'll be eligible for board certification um, as a chaplain. But I, I think what I love about the work is um, is it, it's, it's really about caring for people wherever they're at, um, whether they're in pain and suffering, um, whether that person is intubated and can't even talk to you. Um, mm-hmm. If that person is emotionally distressed, spiritually distressed, uh, whatever faith tradition that person practices, or no faith tradition, if they're atheist. uh, I think for me, the point of pastoral care um, and being a chaplain is to somehow come alongside that person and care for them and let them know that they're they're not alone, at least for the the time that, that you're in the room with them.
0: And it's a, I mean, even under normal circumstances, it can be quite an intense setting, right?
1: Yeah, it can be. Yeah, so the, I mean, the, the, the floor that I work on is a general medicine floor. And um, there's a lot of uh, drug overdoses that come in. Um, uh, there's a lot of alcohol withdrawal that we see. Um, there's a lot of uh, cirrhosis, um, Blood cancers are on my floor a lot. Um, uh, And then occasionally, just because there aren't a ton of beds at the hospital, uh, traumas will come through as well. And that can be anything from motorcycle accidents, car accidents, uh, gunshot wounds, um, falls uh, from tree stands, all sorts of things. Um, So it's, I mean, just the variety and range of human experience and suffering and joy that i see um has has been remarkable i just i don't know i didn't i didn't know humans experienced this many things before i started uh, Hmm. working at a hospital
0: the range, the full range yeah 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 and i you know i
1: thought that i thought that a big question for me um before i started this work was going to be Know, where is God in this? Um, yeah. Yeah. Why does God allow suffering like this to happen? But I think the real surprise for me uh, has been the amount of care and compassion and joy that lives alongside suffering um, in these hospital rooms. The closeness and the intimacy of families, the way that they care for each other in surprising ways, um, the resilience of patients. Um, all that is Along, living alongside incredibly intense um, and sometimes chronic and prolonged suffering.
0: And so those, um, those have moved those, what you thought were going to be the questions have, have just not felt like the questions. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. Th- those questions have fallen away. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Interesting.
0: You talked about, you mentioned joy a moment ago. I mean, I think many folks, myself included, um, when they, it, enter into a conversation like this, expect to hear about the trauma and the heartbreak Mm -hmm. and the pain, and I don't know why, but I didn't expect you to say joy, Mm -hmm. so talk about the joy you've encountered. Yeah,
1: Um, let me try and think of uh, an example that might bring suffering and joy together. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I've seen merciful deaths, um, deaths where someone has been hanging on. Um, yeah. just recently there was um, an elderly man um, who was, uh, his daughters were with him. Um, he must've been in his late eighties or early nineties uh, because of COVID his wife um, wasn't allowed to be with him, but we brought an iPad into the room and his wife was at a nursing home and she was able to uh, watch him die. She was able to uh, see him as they pulled the tube out of his mouth uh, and extubated him and uh, watched him as they took all the machines off of him and moved him to what's called comfort care. So the only things that we were doing was making this man comfortable and um, he held on for a little bit, and the, his daughters, who were in the room, were getting a little uh, antsy and worried and wondering why he was holding on for so long, and uh, wondering if he had any unfinished business or anything that was keeping him here. But eventually, he did die, and it was um, it was joyful. Uh, it was joyful because he was there was a letting go, and yeah. he was. He was finally at peace um, and they were not waiting around anymore for this death to happen.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so I, I, think, I think that that happened and you know, but he, he left behind a wife. Uh, I think they have been married for more than 50 years. Um, yeah. But so there's inc- gonna be incredible suffering for her, but there's also joy in that release and, and finally wow. being at peace. Wow,
0: that's quite something to be in the room for that.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's, and, you know, there are a lot of. I, I mean, the, I don't experience death every day, but you know, maybe uh, once a week or something like that. I'll, that'll, someone on my floor will die, um, and so I'll be in the room, or um, or I'll be with them, um, and the person, the patient, will die during the night, or or before I get there the next day, but. So yeah, it's It's a real, I mean, that, I think that's part of it too. It's a real privilege to be yeah. with families in these moments of vulnerability yeah. um, and these very intimate moments. Um, moments Has when, anything
0: surprised you about those moments or about being present around so much death?
1: Yeah. Um, also the humor that people use. <laughs> <laughs> there's
0: a story there. Uh, there's a story behind that, I'm sure. There are more Yeah. Than
1: one. Um, I was... There was a young man, I think he had just turned 33. He had had leukemia for 10 years um, and he was dying. Um, and I was with his mother for, probably, oh my gosh, it must've been, I saw his mother almost every day for about a month um, while they were in the hospital, maybe longer, but uh, his sisters would visit and they had the darkest, funniest sense of humor. Like I. I, I would laugh with them, but while I was laughing with them, I was like, I don't, I don't know if this is okay. <laughs> but then, yeah, there's, I mean, that was how they coped was through humor. And I see that with, I'll see that with other families too. Um, and it, it, it can be really beautiful. Um, and, and then telling, you know, the way families will tell stories about their loved ones and, uh, you know, how stubborn this person was or uh, ridiculous things that they did. Um, so I, it's been a real surprise for me too, the way that yeah, uh, the joy lives alongside suffering, but but humor does too. Um, yeah. Oh, interesting. The way that surprised would,
0: me. Yeah, I wouldn't have necessarily paired those. Now I know uh, about what you do enough to know, as you said earlier, that the job is primarily about coming alongside, and yet mm-hmm. even for those who maybe don't belong to tradition, you do carry perhaps in people's minds, some sense of authority around spiritual matters. And I, I can I can imagine that around death, for example, there'd be a moment where somebody turns to you and says, what's gonna happen? Mm-hmm. Or what's it gonna be like? Or what happens after you die, whether it's about them or their loved one? How do you, what, do you ever get that question? And if you do, mm-hmm. how do you handle that? What, do you, what mm-hmm. do you say out of your own conviction? And what do you leave up to them? How do you frame that?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, I think sort of the,
1: this, the most common response you'll get from a chaplain in that, in that situation and, and from me too is, is what do you think happens? So to turn the question back on the, you know, on the family member or the patient who's asking this question because it's not important what I think, um, it's important what you think and let's work through your idea of the afterlife or your idea that there isn't an afterlife and what does that mean for you? And is this commitment belief, uh, belief or commitment giving you life or taking life away from you? And so that I think the point is to, for me to explore what the patient or the family member believes and um, if possible um, use that belief as a resource to help them get through whatever it is they're going through. But you know, I, the less, Clinical approach, so you you know that's a more that's an approach we'll hear more in, in you know in therapy or that's kind of more standard. But I also encounter patients and family members who want to have a, re, a relationship with me. They want me to be a person, and they want me to have a belief system that they yes. can engage with. Yes. And, and when I sense that, I will respond from my own faith. And the way I usually respond to that question is with Romans 8.38, which is, you know, just a summary of it. Nothing can separate, separate us from the love of God. So there's nothing you can do, we can do. There's nothing in the world, nothing above the world or below the world that can separate us from God's love. And we might not know what the afterlife looks like, um, but we know that God's love will be present with us, and that we will be united with God's love, and and that's the the only sure thing for me um, is that that relationship of love will continue.
0: I, I'm really um, uh, interested in hearing that because the the clinical response is familiar to me, and mm-hmm. and I gather what is often offered in inappropriately. So I think for mm-hmm. reasons you stated and reasons we can all understand, but I, I do. Uh, it, it's good to know that that folks are thinking about if there is that other space created or invitation made that folks Mm -hmm. will take that step, or at least you will, because I sometimes wonder if, you know, okay, then the person lies there and says, okay, well, I'm really scared. What do you, well, you know, but I want to know about your fear, which is also an an appropriate follow-up. I remember interviewing for a job one time years and years ago, and one of the pastors, there'd been co-pastors at this place. They hated each other forever. And um, one of them had completely lost their faith during, their ministry there, which happens, um, but an example given to me of this is somebody was in the hospital dying of cancer. It was a woman dying of cervical cancer, and she asked the pastor to pray with her. And he said, "Well, I don't really believe in this, but I'll give it a whirl." And I just thought, you know, uh, that's theological malpractice and yeah. spiritual mm-hmm. malpractice. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say every chaplain needs to have my belief system or 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 mm-hmm. any you know prescribed belief system, but uh, it's nice to know that there are people there who, if if you want to go beyond just the clinical reflection kind of mm-hmm. model, that there is someone with whom to go there with. I can imagine that being of great comfort to someone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and I, I, w- I will say this too, Rob, that one thing that I've noticed, and I'm not sure if this is an irresponsible generalization or not, but I, with a lot of wealthier, privileged white families, it's more often the case that if I say, well, what do you think? Um, then we'll start to explore what resources they have. But if it's a poor black family, they want help. That family wants help from me and they want resources from me. And they don't want me to say, well, what do you think? Because they have nothing. Um, they have nothing to, so you, you, to hold on to. That's fascinating.
0: That's fascinating. So you attribute that to a resource question. Mm-hmm. I, the, where my mind went, and both could be true, or we could both be off base is, is there an authority question there? Meaning, in mm-hmm. some, some cultural communities, the religious figure has a higher authority and mm-hmm. maybe has more permission to say this is what's so. Mm-hmm. Whereas, in uh, I mean, you've been in my context, you know, we're here more to moderate and facilitate, but not to tell anyone. Right, what I think, right. right,
1: right. Yeah, no, yeah, the, yeah, the, authority, the authority is part of that, and um, authority is a resource.
0: Isn't that something? Wow. Boy, I, I would never have gone there, but it makes loads of sense now. Are there other okay? You, you, since you've opened this door a couple of times now, other things you've learned from serving in such an intercultural context, hmm. or biracial or multiracial?
1: Hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I guess I guess there are just some cultural things that I, I look out for. Um, so there was one. We had an ethics consult with. Uh, uh, this one patient um, who was found down uh, after a heroin overdose and it had been, I think it had been a while before he was found. And so he had an anoxic brain injury and there was just really no way he was going to come back unless through a miraculous, um, through miraculous means. And um, there was this ethics consult and we said, you know, the mother of this patient, um, is pursuing treatment, um, even though it's really unlikely. It's there's almost no chance, really no chance that this patient is going to come back. Um, should we seek another, seek out another, someone else in this family um, as the decision maker, since we're not making any headway with the mother, and it may be unethical to con- continue treatment on this patient. And so we went, not we, but the doctors went around. Um, or bypass the mother in, in this black family and in black culture that is a really bad idea because she is the authority in this family. Um, and we really, really stepped on some toes. And,
0: were the doctors and, who did this or the staff who did this all white?
1: Um, no, I mean, some, some, most were white, but actually the way it worked out was that the, I think the doctors were white and then the social worker whose job it was to, contact. Another family member was black. Wow. So, and she was very uncomfortable with it. So it was, um, yeah, it was a cultural difference, um, and a lack of cultural understanding where who's about who's the authority in the family and who you're
0: allowed to talk to and who's going to make these decisions. Does that get talked about a lot where you are? Because where I am, um, you know, you know what Marin is like, it's very uh-huh. segregated. Um, uh-huh. and so, um, because we we've created a setting in which we don't interact that much we therefore don't have as many occasions or don't make as many occasions to talk about such things surely this must come up then serving where you do it does yeah it, it comes up especially in the
1: education setting for me the and um, in, in the group with our with the educator okay. and it will also come up It's coming up more, you know, I don't get a chance to be in these meetings a lot, um, but in the ethics consults, it it will come up. It's coming up more and more, um, the more that I've been in, been able to sit in on those.
0: Interesting. Wow, that's that's fascinating. I remember from, I did the smaller, the one unit of CPE, which for folks who were watching, that's the internship kind of just a summer. And uh, for me too, I served in a similar hospital downtown Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And um, it was in my small group too, that these dynamics came up often in a way I was operating often in a way that I was unaware of. And so I sort of felt like I, I don't do that or I don't think that way, but it was being reflected back to me that perhaps I did. And that was mm-hmm. a very new experience for me. Mm-hmm. You know, this, my idea to, to engage you uh, in this conversation came out of uh, a tweet. I saw where a woman, I think it was a woman described what to someone like me seemed like a pretty traumatic day. Um, I, th- I think it was a scene similar to one you described moments ago about somebody dying from coronavirus and saying goodbye to family members on a tablet and uh, it really intense. And, and you had replied, that's my every day. And mm. I just thought, wow, uh, I've got to talk to this guy and, and let folks see what this is like. I, I think it's a moment where many of us and perhaps it's a voyeuristic Uh, impulse. I think there's a piece of that. There's also a piece of us that have just never seen, many of us have never seen anything like this pandemic in our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. we want it. We, we want information by that. We want to know what it's, what's going on, what it's like. Mm -hmm. And so moments like that, for those of us who are still just hunkered down kind of waiting and watching are really um, alluring to us for Mm -hmm. all kinds of complex reasons. It strikes me though, as we talk, that maybe what you're doing is not as different now mm-hmm. as it was 6 months, that this may not be that different for you it's very different for us i mean can you talk a little bit about what this particular moment is bringing and how it, it is or is not
1: mm-hmm. similar
0: to what was happening in the hospital before
1: yeah yeah i you know I, I will say that that there is a major difference and and that's that visitors are no longer allowed at yeah. the hospital unless the patient is on comfort care. So the patient is actively dying. Um, What about births? uh, So we don't, we don't have a maternity ward at our hospital, but uh, I believe at the other hospitals that do those are the exceptions, birth, birth and death. Okay. Um, Yeah. So I, and, and another caveat or something to note is that right now at our hospital chaplains are not going in COVID rooms. So we're, we are preserving, Uh, PPE, uh, personal uh, protection equipment for nurses and doctors who absolutely need to be in those rooms. And so we will um, communicate with the patient over the phone or with an iPad that someone takes in the room. Um, So that this particular example where a doctor has the iPad with the patient, and and that's a COVID patient, the patient is is probably intubated and the family's just saying goodbye to the patient um, and the patient may hear them, but the patient can't respond. Um, I'm not in those situations because I'm not in that room as of now, but if we get more COVID patients, I, it, it may become more normalized for me to be in that room. I'm not sure. I know the hospital across towns, Barnes, Jewish, the chaplains are going in, in COVID rooms and they have more COVID patients. Mm-hmm. But um, where, I, where this scenario plays out, often where I'm taking this, an iPad in the room and the patient is dying or close to death. Um, this is happening a lot with uh, patients who are intubated and can't talk, so they have a breathing tube down their throat, and the family members are not allowed to be at the hospital, um, so they can't visit the patient, and yet the patient is not, there's still Uh, measures being taken to keep the patient alive. So at that point, per the hospital's policy, family can't be there. Um, But they want to be able to see their loved one and um, they want to be able to say goodbye. They want to be able to, they want to tell this person that they love them. Um, So a, a lot of, a lot of what I do throughout the day is I will take an iPad into this room and I'll hold it in front of the patient and the family will, Say the most intimate things to this person. Um, you know how much they love them. Um, you know that they want them to wake up. That they want them oh. to attend their graduation. That they need to. Um, they need to wake up so that they can see their grandchildren grow up. So they can see their children grow up. Um, I mean, it's just heartbreaking to. To to know what the medical chart looks like and to know that this patient is not going to come back and not going to wake up, but then to hold an iPad in front of them with their family, uh, who was saying to the patient, uh, please live. Um, We love you.
0: You mentioned it being a a privileged uh, role Mm -hmm. and place in that room to hold that iPad. Mm -hmm. What other words come to mind when you're the one holding that, that portal between loved ones?
1: Yeah, it's it's been a process of figuring out what my role is in that room and, and who I am. I mean, in the in the past, chaplaincy has been a ministry of presence. So I, I go into the room and I'm with the family member, and I am able by entering that room and staying there with them, no matter how much the family is suffering, no matter how, how much the patient is suffering. It's a ministry of presence because I. I'm not scared, I'm not gonna leave the room. What we do most often when someone is suffering and when someone is in pain, emotional or physical is we look away or we turn away or we say something positive, something uplifting so that we don't have to feel their suffering, suffering and and try and get them out of that space where they're suffering because it's too uncomfortable for us. Um, And that, that is the ministry of, of presence is for me to be able to go in there and sit with them in that suffering and not turn around, turn away. But now in this, this case, right. I am kind of secondary, right. right? The the connection between the family and the patient. And so I, I I'm starting to think of it as a ministry of witness. Mm. I'm here witnessing um, this bond, this closeness. Um, I may not be able to offer presence, but I am here connecting um, yeah. the family with the patient and I am witnessing it. Um, yeah. which I think there's still um,
0: something soothing about that, something yeah. powerful about that. Um, yeah. Oh, wow. You know, it, it's, I mean, it makes perfect sense that you all would not um, use the protective equipment so that it could be spared for others. I, I certainly understand that. There's a part of me, though, that's so angry about that, though, Mm. because you're not able to do that, what you just described for Mm. COVID patients. Mm -hmm. And um, I've said this before here at the church, that all these heroic acts are heroic, that we've been all praising and cheering for, but they're also all, or many of them, signs of systemic failures, Mm -hmm. because it's not It didn't have to be that we had, we have to ration gowns and gloves, Mm -hmm.
1: you know, and Mm -hmm. say, well,
0: the chaplains should be the first to go because Mm -hmm. they're not necessary and we need to save Mm -hmm. them for the doctors and the nurses or whatever that, Mm um, I mean, that's deeply frustrating Yeah, uh, Yeah. to me. Can you handle my anger? Uh, Oh yeah. Well, I think, I, (laughs) I mean, I think one of our,
1: our major fears as chaplains is harming other people. Um, yeah sure and so if sure. if our presence was what was healing before what if now our presence can be something that's dangerous and yes. could actually harm people so yeah. part of us not going in COVID rooms is not only to protect sure. you know save that equipment but it's also so we i mean we see a lot of people so we don't if we become exposed yep. we don't expose more people um, because we go in between floors and so it's, I think that's part of it too, but I, but I think you're right. I think if we had enough PPE, if we had the resources and materials that we needed to keep nurses and doctors and chaplains safe, um, we wouldn't be using wartime language. We wouldn't exactly need to use the language of, of heroes. And, and I, a lot of the nurses I talk with don't like the language of heroes. I mean, they're here to do a job and they want to be protected and they don't,
0: they didn 't um, sign up to be heroes yeah exactly, exactly. yeah that 's it I want to hear more about that, and also the wartime language because I find the wartime language well understandable mm-hmm. um, um, deeply troubling the more one thinks about it mm-hmm. for all kinds of reasons so t- talk t- tell me about about how they want to be seen and the language that and how you 're experiencing the language and what framing you might offer
1: yeah i mean I, I guess I would say. Um, it's, it's hard to generalize, but I, just for my nurses and, and my intensive care unit, um, it, it sort of seems like it's business as usual. It's, it's some heightened anxiety. Um, but what they want is they, they want PPE. They want the equipment that they need to do their job. And I don't hear a lot of language from them about heroism. I hear what I hear from them is give us the equipment to keep us safe. Wow. wow.
0: Yeah, it almost it, it's almost as if all that kind of talk just distracts us mm-hmm. from the real need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, so it strikes me that some people who watch this, uh, on some level, may be wondering, and even though California's done A really good job and it hasn't hit here. Certainly in Marin, I think we have 220 cases, but Mm. um, a handful of deaths, which is of course tragic, but we haven't experienced the wave like some other localities have. So I don't know how present the fear is for people, but I can imagine some people wondering if it hits me and if I have to go into the hospital, what's it going to be like? So Mm. as somebody who's been on the inside and a lot of really serious situations. What would you say to a healthy person as they consider the potential, whether it's COVID or something else, of them being hospitalized in a serious situation? What would you Uh, say to them that might help them?
1: Oh, (laughs) that's a tough question. Um, hmm. I mean, I think it would just be so particular to the person um, and to... uh, I would listen for what the need is and that need can be as unique as that particular person. Sometimes, you know, sometimes a person needs reassurance. Mm -hmm. Sometimes a person needs you to not look away. Sometimes it's about um, the patient's dignity being maintained. Sometimes it's about connecting them with their family. I mean, you don't, And often you don't really know what your need is going to be until you're in a crisis, and then it. Well, that's
0: yeah. In a sense, I think that might be what I'm asking, though I'm not sure. And that is, how does one be a good patient? And by good, I don't mean like a good little boy and girl, but a patient Mm. that is able to uh, accomplish getting their needs met. Like, how does one do that? Because we're not taught how to be patients right and some of us grew up like I did just trusting every daggone authority that crosses our way and others are more fiery in their advocacy for themselves or the others Mm -hmm. and so what do you know what it means you've Mm. you've learned or are learning what it means to be a good chaplain Mm. do you know what it means to be a good patient
1: yeah that's that's a that's a kind of a tough question for
0: me. Um, I like asking them better, yeah. than
1: answers,
0: better than answering them. That's for sure, yeah. I like this end of it.
1: <laughs> well, I, you know, in the hospital setting, I'll, I'll just say that that, that can be, um, that what it means to be a good patient is, has a kind of a, a moralizing tone to me. Yes. Because it yep. mean, especially in a poor city, it means do you behave well as yes. a patient? Yes. Do you behave like a white person? Um, do you keep your emotions in check? Do you respect yeah. the authority of the doctors versus yeah, um, are you loud? Do you make your needs known? Um, and if you're white, you know, talk, advocating for yourself is something that you understand how to do and that you've been trained to do, but you don't know how to advocate for yourself uh, in this system uh, as a black person often.
0: So it's um, being a yeah, good in, patient, in this yeah. in this system maybe being the operative words that
1: mm-hmm. the way
0: you advocate here looks like this not like yeah. that yeah.
1: yeah yeah but I, I will say for, so for me as a chaplain the patients what it means to be a good patient or what what makes a successful relationship between me as a chaplain and a patient is if we can collaborate if we can come together and work on meeting both of our needs, meeting my needs as a chaplain and meeting your needs as a patient. And that means being vulnerable and sharing what your needs are. Um, And I will say the the most difficult patients for me are patients who are caregivers, uh, patients who are nurses, patients who are ministers, uh, because these types of patients are not used to being cared for. And there's a lot of resistance um, to opening up, to being vulnerable, to naming your needs. Um, when I walk into a room and it's a nurse and she's been hospitalized or he's been hospitalized, that patient often tries to care for me. Yeah. When I walk into the room, they ask me how my day is. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. Things like that. They're trying to make me feel at ease. And I appreciate that. And it's that's, that's really lovely. But but it's got to be exhausting and it's got to be so hard to not be able to turn off that part of yourself.
0: That's caring for other people. It would be wonderful for someone to teach us how to be cared for. Right. Right. I mean, just, we don't get that education and uh, yeah, you see it all the time. Well, as a final question, I mean, it's kind of an obvious one, but I wonder, I wonder where you see, where does hope show up in your place Mm. of vocation?
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think hope shows up all the time, everywhere. It shows up um, when a doctor goes down on one knee and talks with a patient eye to eye. Um, It shows up when um, a chaplain holds a patient's hand. I I mean, there are so many times when I visited a patient where we've had a conversation, but there have been a few times when a patient has been in a lot of pain And I've just sat by the patient and held their hand. And that contact, that's hope to me. Um, Someone coming into the emergency department and not looking like they're gonna live and then they do survive, that's hope. Um, Someone, a family being able to let go of a patient who has very little quality of life or no quality of life, that's hope. I also, also, you know, there was a patient with Down syndrome and uh, I was in a family meeting and the doctors were saying, you know, we need to change the code status of this patient because if, if this patient recovers, he's, you know, it's probably not going to have a high quality of life, but the family were able to say to the doctor, no, this is a high quality of life for this, for this person, for this patient. Um, Even though the patient is disabled or because the patient is disabled, this, this is, he is living a good life, and there's hope for me when we, um, as a community, can recognize all you know a whole variety of ways to thrive, and um, that may not be recognizable to other people. So when there's a lot of hope when we expand our horizons for what it means to thrive. Um, yeah, and yeah, I think I think that 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 is really the big question that's tied to hope for me is where and how can you thrive in the midst of the suffering or in the midst of um, more limited abilities um, or a loss of abilities? So that, I mean, yeah, whether it's your own body that's, that you're, that's failing or you're losing abilities or you're losing a loved one, um, what sort of resilience is there and, and how, how can you thrive? And if you can't thrive, and if there is no resilience, who will sit by you um, yeah. in that place where there is no hope? I mean, that's a kind of hope to me, is yes. that
0: someone can be with you Right. where there is no hope. Yeah. Wow. Spoken like a poet. <laughs> so got it. Well, Joe, this has been great. Thank you again for making so much time for us and for sharing your growth and ministry. We will be eager to follow you, but not to rush you into the future. So uh, <laughs> we'll leave it there. It's been great to see you. All right.
1: Good to see you, Rob.
0: All right. Take care.